Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where we love to talk about movies. So, let's talk about some movies. Boo, how are you this week? I'm good. I mean, at the end of every month, I'm a little bittersweet because we're ending our theme, and this month has been all Tarantino movies, and it's coming to an end, but we're talking about a great movie today. Yeah, we definitely are. This is the conclusion to Tarantino Month, and to conclude it, we're talking about his latest movie, uh, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as of this recording. Yes. And to my knowledge, it's his last movie, or it's more or less going to be his last movie. I don't know if he has another one he's planning on making anytime soon. I mean, with Death Proof, it's ten movies, but on the poster, which I did notice, it does it's say ninth, ninth film. Yeah. So I guess we do have another movie. But I mean, if he was going to end it on number ten, this would be a really strong movie to end it on. Yeah, because I know that's the thing that a lot of Tarantino fans talk about is Tarantino, he only wants to make ten films and yada yada yada. Yeah. Which... It makes sense when he explains it, but also when he explains it, he's very cagey about if he's only ever going to make ten movies. Yeah. But with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's a pretty good good movie to end on if you wanted to. It's a very good movie. Yeah, it's also kind of surprising because going into the movie the first time, because we saw this together in, a, in the movie theater, like right before the world ended. Yeah. So... What were your expectations going into the film the first time? I mean, I was just excited. Trailer-wise, I was like, okay, this is hitting everything that I love Mm -hmm. in a movie about Los Angeles because this is Quentin Tarantino's love letter to L.A. So I'm like, okay, I'm like, let's see how this plays out and coming into the movie kind of completely different from what I expected. Mm -hmm. Because in the trailer, it's just pop fast. I'm like, okay, cool, let's see it. But it's like, no, we get an actual full story on the characters that we have in this film yeah i remember going into it and i i'm not gonna lie i actually thought this was gonna be the tarantino flop like not even lying because i saw hateful eight before this i saw that in the theater and i was like okay this is a slower you know more western it's just a, a really different kind of movie yeah and then going into once upon a time in hollywood i thought okay this is gonna be the one that's gonna be pretty good but it's probably going to flop really bad. And I was pleasantly surprised. It was actually very good. Yeah. And I'm I'm really happy to finally give it a rewatch because, um, surprise to everyone out there, I've never, I haven't seen this movie since the theater. That is surprising. Yeah. So it was nice finally watching it again. And I think it still holds up to that first theater experience. I definitely noticed a lot more things, but we're going to get into all that. So Boo, where would you like to start? I think we should start with the characters. Played by the, the dynamic duo, the people who this movie was sold on, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, playing Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. How do you like Rick Dalton? Because this is kind I of him. his movie. Yeah, you love him? Absolutely love Rick Dalton. He is a, a very interesting individual, right? He's in his feels a lot. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not just, you know ooh, he's this Hollywood actor, here he is, you know, flashbang, action star. No, it's like, we get to see Rick Dalton acting, but most of the time we see him having, you know, an existential crisis. Oh my god, he has three or four breakdowns in the movie where he's just a crying mess, and it's it's funnier every time. I mean, we get the great line from Cliff Booth, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. (laughs) I mean, I was dying when I heard that in the theater, you looked at me, you're like, 
is that true? We're not supposed to cry in front of you? And I was just like, no, but okay. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, and and I, I just really like Rick Dalton as a character in the movie because he's just so... He's real. No, he's not. He's real, he's yeah. Not, he's, he's, a, he's almost like a parody of like the Hollywood stunt guys of the 1950s and 60s that, oh, you know, they're the tough guy on screen. But off screen, they're fucking manic depressive alcoholics. Like he's he's like an amalgamation of a bunch of just jokes about Hollywood leaning men of a certain era. Yeah, and it's not, you know, flash kaboom all the time. It's, you know, oh cool, he's this great actor, but oh my god, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? I'm getting older. I can't do a lot of these roles anymore. I'm just a crying, weeping mess. And it's like, yeah, that's very realistic compared to action star through and through you mean like the person he's working with cliff booth i mean cliff booth is the hero cliff booth okay because i i read the the novelization yes. of the film and you know it's it's an interesting read mm-hmm. just gonna throw it out there it is self-indulgent as, as fuck yeah but tarantino has made enough money he can do whatever the fuck he wants exactly. he's achieved fuck you money but Cliff Booth in the book is so fleshed out and is really interesting. He's probably the most interesting character of the novel. And in the movie, I'm like, I... You are there. You're you're cool. He's Han Solo of this movie, where he's cool. Yeah. But why is he cool? Because he's cool. And he's That's Brad like, we, we needed more context, more time with Cliff to kind of see who he really is. Yeah, because we get one scene alone with him where it's like just just him not playing off anybody else and that's when he has his dog brandy brandy thank you and that's like the only time we see cliff just in a a stasis right yeah we we get to go home with him and see you know he lives in a small trailer like you would see on set and it's just him and his dog and nothing really is going on in the trailer it's just food his pet and clothes that's it it's like, he doesn't need a lot. Yeah, and it's, you know, tells only a little bit about his character, but... Like, not too much. Not too much. Apparently, he's a he's a fucking war hero. And yeah. it's like, he's a war hero? And it's like, oh, and he, like, killed his wife. Wait, he killed his wife? And, like, all this stuff. And apparently, he's, like, he's a cinephile. And he's, like, an action guy. Mm-hmm. Or he was, a, he was a stunt guy that was brought in to, like, set, like, punchy actors straight when they got too handsy with stunt crew. Like, that was his, like, gig. Mm-hmm. But none of that's expressed in the movie. Like, don't get me wrong. I love Brad Pitt in this. I think I love Brad Pitt in most anything I've seen him in. He was the best part of Cool World. And Cool World was hot garbage. But, you know, I just really wish there was more for him to do in the film. But, granted, Leo is doing a lot in this. So, I I don't want it enough. I didn't want an extra, like, hour and a half just so Cliff Booth can talk about Seven Samurai, I guess. But still, it would have been cool to get a little bit more out of him and see who he is as a person versus just being a constant badass. Yeah, I think that's my that's my thing, you know. But um, those are the characters, but I, I kind of well, want to talk about the actors. Well, I mean, we're also forgetting Sharon Tate in the movie, who's played by Margot Robbie. That's true. That is true. Because, because it isn't the, just a bromance. It's not just a bromance, because this is... They're the three leads of the movie, but... I keep forgetting that Sharon Tate's a part of this movie because she's 
just drifts in and out of the narrative throughout yeah. the whole thing until the climax, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie's mostly about the two of them, but Sharon is a big part of the story, and Sharon is also Rick's neighbor. Okay, uh, I, I gotta ask you this. Did you, did you think that having the Sharon Tate and the Manson stuff in the movie detracted from what Tarantino was trying to do? No. Are you sure? Okay, this is this is gonna get into my you know the the weird Dean mind bubble. Oh, here we go. Break up the tinfoil. <sighs> the hat on, but no, it's just like like um like the film theory craft here, right? Mm-hmm. Because how I feel like the movie's story that's trying to tell with like Cliff and Rick, right? Mm-hmm. It's the story of this guy who was once the maybe not the toast of Hollywood, but a guy that could have been you know the next Steve McQueen or whatever. Yeah. He was. Or the next Paul Newman. He was somebody who, at one point, had this whole career in front of him. And he kind of just missed his mark. And now he's just been spiraling in this Hollywood culture. and But he's going on in years. And now it's kind of his spiral and trying to reinvent himself as a leading man in, in this era of Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? And him, tra- him and Cliff, with Cliff being his you know trusty stuntman and how he is somebody who's already basically been shunned by Hollywood and how they are traversing this time in their lives. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Sharon Tate and Manson stuff where I feel for the most part is there to just give this rising tension throughout the movie. Yeah. I I really was afraid of watching what, what happened. Yeah. Yeah. The the Tate Bianca murders. Yeah. Well, I mean in this movie where it ended, it would have just been the the Tate Tate murders, murders. but yeah, that would have led into the Bianca murders the next day. But yeah, I sat there with a pit in my stomach like, oh my god, this is happening. I've seen crime scene photos. I've seen documentaries about it. and It's completely it, horrific. It's so, one of those true crime things that if you're into Hollywood, you, you always stumble across it. Yeah, and it was just like, man, if we're going to watch it in a Tarantino movie, it's they're really going to go for it. Yeah. Because, I mean, with Tarantino movies, they're bloody, they're gory, you know. I mean, they've he, made he, me flinch before. It's, it's just like, ooh. I mean, he can show some levels of restraint yeah. while still depicting brutality. We talked about that in Django. Yeah. But was not looking forward to that, and then it subverts the whole thing with the um, with the ending. Yeah. Which I enjoyed because all of that was so horrific, and I was like, okay, I like that we got a break from that, and we didn't have that in this universe. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing I I'm thinking about is. It feels like that was added to the movie to create that, that artificial tension throughout the film. Yeah. Because I was on the edge of my seat once we got to the end. They're, they're making their way up Cielo Drive, and it's like, we know what happens going up that hill Cielo Drive that night. And then it subverts it. And yeah. the subversion of it is where I kind of have a little bit of an... I guess not a, not even an issue, but I feel that's something where Tarantino was like, okay, we gotta get the Tarantino-isms where we have Cliff Booth because... He's fucking Han Solo and a badass. Destroy these people. He's Cliff Booth, Hollywood stuntman. Hollywood stuntman. And he, like, destroys these fucking hippies and Rick Dalton lights somebody on fire with a flamethrower. And it's the thing that a lot of people have criticisms for Tarantino where violence solves everything in your movies and you don't need nuance to solve problems. Except when you're dealing with the Manson family that's out to commit murder, Look, like, that that I is un- the way to. I understand that, but like, for God's sakes, like that's a, the thing people have argument in a lot of his movies. Inglorious Bastards, hey, we can end the Holocaust if we kick more ass. 
Django, we could have ended slavery if we kicked more ass. Like, that that's the theme in a lot of his movies. Yeah. We could have... America would have been better if we kicked more ass. That's something that John Wayne would have said in, like, Stagecoach. Yeah. But, you know, I uh, that's the only gripe I guess I have with the Sharon Tate and Manson stuff mm-hmm. is how the ending plays... How, how those two parallel stories, I don't feel, mesh well. Because it feels like Rick and Cliff... Their story only just kind of tangentially bounces into it at the end, just so that we can have a climactic ending to their narrative, instead of just, like, I would like to see, you know, the movie end with Rick going out and just becoming Clint Eastwood making spaghetti westerns. That would have been, like, an interesting, satisfying little ending to his arc. But, I mean, we kind of see him become a actual hero. Yeah. Him and Cliff. And Brandy. And Brandy. And Brandy. Even his wife in the movie, Cliff, or not Cliff, uh, Rick's new wife. Mm-hmm. She gets in there, throws a couple of punches. But it's just like, we see him at the very beginning where he's kind of this lost actor that's falling, you know, just further and further into the TV guide where it's, oh, wasn't he in Bounty Law? Now he's doing all these weird movies too. No, I've actually done something good for humanity itself. And, and it's implied that it pays off for him because he gets... The gates finally open up and he's invited to the the Polanski residence mm-hmm. and he's going to be in a Rome Polanski movie and he's going to reinvent his whole career. Yeah. Like, I, I do understand how the ending works within their narrative. It's just, I don't think it meshes 100%. It meshes like 80% for me. For me, it meshes the whole way. It meshes the whole way? I mean, I, yeah. again, like, it's the whole thing. Films are, films are really like just objective. We just, you know, feel different things about it. But... Something we do feel strongly about is performances in this movie. Yes, and you, I know that's critical that performance is up there on your level of, is this a good movie? Yes. Is this an okay movie? Yes. If if I, if I don't like the performances, then I'm really just not into it. Um... Oh, he's not. It's it's true. It's it's true. It's, it's, the, basic, it's the basic bitch in me. So, Leo and Brad... Do you remember when they were advertising this movie? Yeah. When... I mean, uh, it wasn't that long ago. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it wasn't that long ago. But when Tarantino was like, I've created the 21st century's Paul Newman and Robert Redford by pairing together Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And it's like, do you think they're that level of of stardom in this movie? Is this their Butch Cassidy Sundance kid? Like, Definitely their Butch Cassidy Sundance kid. I, I think this is, what, their first movie together that they've done? Yeah, I, I would think so. So I was kind of skeptical skeptical coming in on this because I've never seen them together. I know they're strong men on their own, but I'm like, okay, let's see them come in and kind of have to share the spotlight, and they did such a good job. Yeah, I mean, they're both really, really, really good actors, and, you know, like, I think the only reason I bring this up is because it was such a point that Tarantino made when he was advertising the film, mm-hmm. at least from what I remember, was he was selling it on, we have Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Two of the biggest actors in Hollywood. Ar- arguably some of the last, like, true, true Hollywood stars, right? Like, yeah. people you can sell a movie just on their name alone. You get what I mean, yeah. right? And it's it's one of those things where it's like, I really enjoy both these actors individually. I've I've been a fan of Brad Pitt forever since, like, 12 Monkeys. Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't think, has had a bad performance in the last, like, 10 years. At, at least for the movies I've seen him in. Or ever. I don't know. 
I haven't seen Don't Look Up yet, and I've heard and I've heard things. I mean, I loved him in Growing Pains and Romeo and Juliet, Titanic. We know, we know you loved him in uh, Romeo and Juliet. But how they work in this movie, I mean, that level of star power and selling the movie, I can definitely see why they would have done it. And especially the performances in here. I don't know, were they nominated for anything? I think they were nominated for their roles in this movie, but they came in playing like they've been working together for years. Like, it's just there that level of comfort, like, oh, yeah, you know, this is our billionth project that we've done together. And it's like, no, this is the first one. And I think that just speaks to the professionalism of the actors here. And also Margot Robbie, who is playing Sharon Tate, does a really good job with, I'll, I'll say, emulating... a very small amount of material to work off of. Also, you know, emulating a real person, because Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are pretend characters yeah. amongst... You know, characters that we have in this movie who are portrayed by real people. I mean, I I don't know if I can... It's, it's only because I don't think I've ever seen a Sharon Tate film. I, I mean, don't she, think so. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't seen Valley of the Dolls. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. But it, I guess it's one of those things, since I don't know Sharon Tate as a as a person... I'm instead not, of... Instead of, you know... Because I think I think the the Manson thing has kind of overshadowed her as a as an actress as an actress, and yeah. I think that's what this movie is trying to do with her character is she was more than just what happened to her. She exactly. was like, she was a three dimensional person. Yeah, and I I think that once that that kind of leads into another talking point we we wanted to get on, and that's how like the history that's represented in this movie. Yeah, and how this movie kind of tries to represent Hollywood and also how it was representing all the history within the film. Um, and I, I wonder what your thoughts on that. Like, do you think this movie is trying to be a historical drama or is it trying to be this, this fantasy within Hollywood? Yeah, this is totally a fantasy within Hollywood because we have like Bruce Lee and how his character is over-exaggerated in this movie. So it's definitely not a historical piece. It's just we're kind of living through that time frame of Hollywood. And it's kind of like, okay, we're going to glaze over it, but we're not going to be authentic to the true story. And I think it works in this movie. I know you were telling me before that there was kind of backlash that people were upset that this wasn't history. This was not how history played out. Yeah, there, there were people who thought it was super disrespectful for creating this like fantasy narrative about somebody who like really died yeah. or disrespecting the memory of people who act in ways that was not I guess necessarily how they would be in real life. Yeah. That being, you know, Bruce, Bruce Lee. Lee. Because people were really not okay with how Bruce Lee was portrayed in the movie. Yeah. I know his daughter was very annoyed by it. Yeah. And Tarantino said, Well, I I Tarantino was very apologetic to her. And but he, to he everyone also, else who criticized him, he told him to go fuck themselves. Yeah, he was basically like, you know, his child has every right to be pissed off at me for the way that I portrayed her father. But the rest of the world, no, you don't have that right because you didn't know the person. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I understand why people might get upset with your altering, you know, the time and the history. But it's like, wouldn't you want history to be altered where Sharon Tate and her family don't get murdered well that gets into a really weird almost like a philosophical argument where it's like is do should we follow history as it was or as we want it to be yeah and that's like the whole thing where 
you know, we, we like, color over, like, the bad parts of history mm-hmm. to make things a little bit easier to digest. Yeah. And this is kind of taking it to, like, an extreme where they color over history and make it something completely different. Where, yeah, most everything kind of happened except, you know, the ending. Yeah. Which is completely, you know, fabricated. So, that that gets into, like, a really weird, like, moral argument, right? Yeah. Because I know, and the, the other thing is some people are fucking dumb. Some people think World War II happened in the 1970s. Oh, and boy. because of movies that are really poor in defining things. Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't know the responsibility Tarantino as a artist has to his audience to portray something like this uh, 100% accurately, rather than how it is, which is a complete fiction. But it's like, do we need something accurate of an event that was just... Super tragic? Tragic, catastrophic. It ended the the free love kind of vibes in the 60s and brought us into a very cold and drab 70s. It's like, with this, the love would have continued. The world would have been a little bit of a better place. Well, that that gets into another... Uh, that gets into another, like, theorycraft argument, yeah. right? Where, yeah, because it, it is arguable that the hippie free love counterculture movement ended when, you know, a, not not a symbol, but a stereotypical free love hippie generation of people committed, like, one of the most, like, brutal mm-hmm. murders in Hollywood, right? With, like, the Manson family, because they were picturesque, hippie, free love, drug-taken, you know, peace, 60s culture, counterculture. Yeah. They were the counterculture. But... I mean, I've seen so much media from within that counterculture movement from the time where it was on track to implode eventually. And, like, Easy Rider came out, I think, in, like, July. I think it came out, like, a month before the Tate murders. Yeah. And that movie is commentating in the time that the counterculture is set on a path of destruction, mm-hmm. and it's already too late to turn back. Like, we had the moment to change everything, and we blew it. Now, I do think the, it, we would have had a completely different timeline if, you know, Charles Manson did, didn't did do what he did. Yeah. Like, Being pissed off because your record wasn't turned into, you know, a hit. It's like, really? He, I think... It's like you're going to turn these, you know, peace-loving people that you've kind of, you know, brought together into a bunch of murders? Well, there's, there's a whole other kettle of fish to that because he was like a lifelong criminal super manipulative i think he got into the counterculture thing because he can get free pussy drugs and manipulate people yeah i mean he was a master manipulator so yeah it was easy to kind of build his own little civilization but the fact that these people were so easily you know able to be flipped into you know peace loving to oh i'm gonna murder for you that's it wasn't a flip boo like i i i'm sorry i'm interrupting but no, they were they were lived down the desert for like a couple of years, and he kept them high on acid. And it's the thing where, like, if if I had nothing but in, it's the thing with prisoners, right? Yeah, it's Stockholm have, syndrome. Not Stockholm syndrome. Infinite time. He takes these people out to the desert, and he has infinite time to just work them over. It's like you put a a, a crab in a pot of water. If it's boiling hot, it's going to jump right out. And it's going to go away. But if you just put it in there, you just slowly turn the heat up every couple of minutes. And just slowly build it up. Lobster doesn't jump out of the pot. That's basically how cults work. But, I'm sorry. It, the The Manson aspect of this is such an overwhelming part of this movie's outside context. And the history that this movie is playing with. Yeah. That it's it's so 
it's so like fascinating how the movie works on it because you remember when like they announced Charles Manson was going to be in this? Yeah, and then that's when you kind of figured, okay, now I understand which way this movie's going. It's not just, you know, oh, cutesy, 60s fun. It's like, no, this is actually the darker time of the 60s. And how are we going to play with this? Is this just like the starting of Charles Manson? Or is this, you know, where we get Charles Manson in full effect? But I think it was smart the way they did in this movie because it was kind of like Jaws. We you just never see him. We, we see, you know, the Manson girls... And then we kind of see him one time. And it's like, okay, we know that the big attack is going to come at the end of the movie. But you never know when. It's yeah. like, they, they might surprise you and it might become, you know, it might come before the climax of the movie. It's so weird how this movie works like that. Yeah. Because it is kind of like Jaws because, okay, going on a whole other, like, mini, mini tiny baby tangent. Okay. If you had no idea about the Manson murders, do you think this movie would have worked in the first go? Like, in that in that tension-building pit of your stomach? Um, if I didn't know about it, I think the movie would still work. It's just, I'd be more lost. Because it's like, well, okay, you, you have these girls, you know, skipping along the, the street, you know, singing. Okay, that that's not supposed to, you know, intimidate me or do anything or, you know, what's this, you know, hippie guy doing at her front door? So I'd be more lost than anything. I think so too. But as a person that knows the history, yeah, it it works because it's like, okay, here come the girls skipping down the street. I know what these girls can do. Oh my god, he's at their front door. I know what he can do. And it's just it's, it's the thing where if you know, you know, and it exactly. makes the movie better. It makes the movie better. It's like any movie where there's kind of like Easter eggs and spoilers in it. It always makes the movie better knowing what those things are. But I think the movie stands alone, even if you don't know the history. Yeah, I mean, it stands it stands better on its own than, like, other movies that are full of, you know, Easter eggs and, like, if you know, you know material. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I like, Force Awakens or Halloween or, or those... The Halloween kind of, 2018, Halloween yeah. 20, where it's, like, 90% of that movie's, con like, unique context of seeing the first one. To understand but a lot the, what's going on. But the on. performances are so strong that you could just watch that movie. Yeah, and yeah. Be I'm not, I'm not the whole way through, I'm not yeah. disparaging like that film, but yeah. it is of that ilk of, um, yeah. of film genre that's really prevalent now. And Once Upon a Hall in Hollywood isn't necessarily like that. It kind of has this thing where it's referencing a lot of things in the background. Yeah. That if you know, you know, but it doesn't make the movie unwatchable. No. But no, it's, it's just the thing that's... I feel if you didn't know, it would make it a very strange watch. Like I, you don't need a, uh, you don't need to read Helter Skelter, but you kind of need to know like the the bare bones gist to really get the full effect of the film. Yeah, because I mean, there's a lot of you know people in our generation and the generation behind us that have absolutely no idea who Charles Manson is, the murders. So I could see where this would be confusing. Of you know, well, who are they? Yeah, you know. Okay, we see them at this old uh, this old ranch. Now, why are they here to kill in the middle of the night? It's like, I don't get that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people that know the history know, okay, you know, orders have been given. These are the people, X, Y, and Z. And I think that's why the end of the movie works well. Mm -hmm. Because we don't get that. I mean, we get to see the Manson family torn apart, which should have happened. <laughs> but we get to see this, you know, alternate kind of ending and it 
you know, even the music that's used in that scene where Rick's, you know, going up to talk to Sharon and Jay Sebring, it's actually used from a movie called The Life and Times of Judge Roy Brown, or sorry, Judge Roy Bean, directed by John Huston, starring Paul Newman. I've never seen it. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I'm, I mean, I'm wondering where you're going with this, but okay. Well, because the title card in this movie was, maybe this isn't the way it was, it's the way it should have been. And I think that's Tarantino's whole kind of, you know, wrapping it with a bow at the end of the movie was, I understand this is not the way that it played out in history of the world and history of Hollywood, but this is the way it should have played out. Sharon and her friends should have been saved. Her child should have been saved. Yeah. Versus... In, in the fact it's called Once Upon a Time, where it's the very fairy tale-esque. Exactly, and, and that's what this movie t- is. It's a f- Hollywood fairy tale, so we're not getting, you know, Hollywood true crime. It's like we are getting a very romanticized version of Hollywood in the 60s. Yeah, and I think that's a, a big point of contention in this movie is... Because remember, people had a, had a fucking hissy fit yeah. over this movie when it came out. But yeah, knowing that and... That's actually a really interesting interesting thing because it really does just put forth that yeah, the movie's whole thing is it's a fantasy. It's a it's a storybook thing you can tell people and it's just supposed to make you feel good at the end. Like it's of course it's not real. It's a movie. Yeah. Movies are fake. And these are fake people interacting in a real world and it's just this is how it kind of works. This is Hollywood. It's all pretend. That's another thing. We talked a little bit about, like, the history that's involved in the movie mm-hmm. and how it's, like, manipulating it. Yeah. But there's one other character that it's being manipulated in this, and that's Hollywood. Yeah. So, do you want to talk about, like, the locations that it's used in this movie, or how Hollywood itself is portrayed as, like, an entity? I mean, I think we would have to talk about both, because there are so many filming locations that are still standing, that have been there forever, and at the time that the, they were, you know, in the 60s, oh, this has been around for, you know, such a long time. And for us, it feels like, well, that's been such a long time since it would have been in this movie. (laughs) We understand, Boo. You fucking love Hollywood. Yes. Like, location history. You love the Hollywood architecture. La La Land is your favorite movie of all time. One of my favorite movies. Yeah, (laughs) you know, it's... But Hollywood really is its own beast. Yeah. You know, it's not the the tourist attraction where, you know, people come and they're walking down looking, you know, at the stars of Hollywood. No, I mean, it is it is that, too, but it's a lot of other things. It's that, too, but it's also, you know, this functioning system where if you're not moving fast enough, it's going to spit you out. And And that's what we see with Rick. Yeah, that's like the whole crux of this movie. And like, that's how Hollywood is portrayed in this movie, where it's this 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 system that takes these guys. They try and make a thing out of them. Rick Dalton is is this guy from what is what do you say in the movie Missouri somewhere yeah yeah he's he's from no Midwest. name he's yeah he's from no name Missouri he gets these roles working like TV gigs he's he's basically playing the whole tough guy role mm-hmm. on TV and he gets his little niche and he's able to make a and he thinks he has a break making it big in movies and then they find out he's not really that great of an actor yeah he's he looks good in a silhouette as a cowboy and he, he's an attractive man. Who can, you know, put out a, a banger performance, but... He ain't Brando. No. He's he's good, but he's not he's not an Oscar actor, and he gets into the system, and it's he does pilot seasons, he does mm-hmm. TV, respectable work, but yeah. he had all these dreams and aspirations, and then pilot he, season's gonna dry up. He got typecast. That, actually, yeah. He's this guy who gets typecast, and then he can't really find his way out of it until he 
leaves Hollywood. Yeah. And that's kind of the story a lot of people have in Hollywood. And that's a major fear that you hear from a lot of interviews with actors in Hollywood where it's like, I didn't want to take on this big role. I knew it would, you know, get me bank, but it was going to typecast me as this character forever. That, who was it? Okay, Christopher Eccleston. He's, uh, he was the ninth Doctor on Doctor Who, mm-hmm. right? They did the Doctor Who revival back in like, oh, whatever. Yeah. And he was the, he was going to come back. He's going to be the first Doctor. It's a, not like a prestigious role as it is like now. Yeah. It was, you know, it, it was a good working role. It was big in Britain. Doctor Who is one of the, is the oldest on-running sci-fi series of all time. Great show. Thank you for getting me into that, by the way. I try my best. And, and he got on there and he's like, I'll do one season. Because if I do it any longer than that, I will only play the Doctor for the rest of my career. And I understand why, like, Rick Dalton in the movie wanted to leave Bounty Law after three seasons. Yeah. Because, you know, it's the whole thing. He's playing this character in Bounty Law, and if he does it long enough, he will only play the character in Bounty Law forever. That's a really interesting way to portray Hollywood, because... In other movies, we've watched, like, uh, La La Land, yeah. where it's this very, like, idealistic and kind of, like, Everyone's singing and dancing. It's this really dreamy and wonderful mm-hmm. place, and it's, like, even with all, the, like, the grime and grit, it can still be, like, this beautiful, mm-hmm. like, like dream factory. And everyone that lives here in L.A. is people that are not from here. They're here to seek, you know, that Hollywood that fame dream. And fortune. Yeah. And in this, it's a lot more bitter. It's kind of, it's kind of dirty in a way and i kind of love it this might be one of my favorite portrayals of hollywood in a movie because it's i mean for being a fairy tale of a movie it's very realistic of what hollywood actually is i mean yeah probably for the time like i'm sure it's much different now or it's probably like the same thing with a new coat of paint yeah a lot of things here get their coat of paint but they don't really change it's like um the spawn ranch location that's used in the movie because my dumbass thought Spawn Ranch was still out there. And Spawn Ranch has been gone for a very apparently long time. Apparently it's condos. But no, it's just a stretch of road. It's just road now? Yeah, because apparently there was a, a problem after the murders that more people wanted to go and just live on the property. Yeah. Because it's like, well, they were able to live there for however long and no one bothered them. So let's do the same thing. And it was like, no, you know, you guys might create your own cult and we're going to have another problem where another set of people are murdered again. So... We're just going to tear it down. So it's like, they're one another piece of Hollywood history, but there's kind of understanding yeah. why. I Also, it, that, that was not Hollywood history. That was a, a, a fire hazard waiting to happen. Because I know that place had not been kept up for oh, like no. decades. But I thought, it, I thought this fact would be cool for you. You probably saw it, but I love that when Quentin T- Tarantino was directing this, he told his cast and crew, I want this to look like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I want them to kind of have that feeling of <laughs> I, kind of dread I and just desolate feeling. a little bit. I got that feeling as soon as Cliff rolled up. Yeah. I was looking at him like, I, because I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You like, love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, uh, unironically, like, you can hate me if you want. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, is a better movie than Halloween. Or, I, it's a better horror movie than Halloween. I think Halloween's a better made film, 
But Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, like, way scary. It's probably, like, the scariest of all the slasher films. I will stand with Halloween, because that is my biased opinion. Un- Halloween. But I did walk with you through the Texas Chainsaw Massacre maze last year. You were not a fan. Oh, my God. I was shaking when I walked out of there. So, <laughs> but, like, while, if, while the if, movie... Yeah. If Tarantino's gonna steal from the grades, I tar- Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a good thing to steal from because it is so creepy on Spawn Ranch in the movie. Yeah. And it goes into, like, I don't know if it's, like, the actual, like, Spawn Ranch and they just built the sets or if it's, like, somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. Don't you have it in your notes where it was from? Uh, I don't think I have it in these notes, but they did rebuild it just somewhere in the desert. They were able to kind of, like, get pictures and, okay, this is what it looks like. set it up close enough. Set it more, set it up more or less the way that it was and it's so creepy and unsettling that whole sequence is unsettling because you're thinking oh cliff's gonna get gonna get got right that's what that's where things are gonna happen that's where the plot's gonna my first go i'm like we've seen him be a badass this whole time why wouldn't the family come out and take him down he's alone and that's why i thought like they didn't know what was going on with him but but at the time of you know this being a new movie to us i thought that's where they were going i'm like okay we get to you know this build-up of oh my god you know he's stuntman he could do this and it's like i I thought that we were finally getting the tarantino horror film thought this was where we were getting the tarantino horror film yeah i I thought this was gonna be you know love story to la but really horror story (laughs) on on the back end of it and the other thing about this movie that i think you know, other than, like, the location stuff. Because I know there's a few in here that you really wanted to, like, hit on. But I know there's one thing you wanted to talk about. And that is one of the Tarantino-isms that is in every one of his movies. Would that happen to be the music? That would be the music. And the use of music in here is very much that, like, 60s surfer feel-good, like, hippie stuff. Yeah. Because it's not like Django, where there's just Jay-Z that just shows up sometimes in the movie. I mean, the the soundtrack to Django is a banger. But this soundtrack, equally a banger. I mean, I love it. There were some songs that I hadn't heard of from the 60s. And it was just so cool to see that it wasn't just a music drop for most of these. It was old radio, like, promos and clips that would play before it. So it's like we weren't really listening to straight music. It was we're in the car with Cliff and we're catching, you know, a a news headline. And then we're jumping into the next song well that's just good sound work that's good sound design soundscaping and and it, and it was real radio clips that they were using like when we get into the car with cliff and rick after they leave musso and franks uh-huh. they're talking about robert kennedy had just been murdered and mm. the, his murderer was about to go to court to confess you know that he committed the murder so it's like okay it's like we're playing like historical stuff on the radio as we're going yeah it really does get a good feel of setting and place because like I, I think that's what tarantino tries to do a lot in his movies is use music to create a mood and a sense of of setting and, and an identity to the film and the music in this movie really does put you in like that late 60s feeling like it doesn't break and you get this mood that it's a it's a happier time it's a nicer time it's a chiller time and then like slowly the pop music fades away to more serious to, music. To, to more, like, score. Like, it gets mm. to actual score later on in the movie, and that's when it's, like, the tension starts rising. When we get to the more, like, the Manson people show up, like, the, the music's gone. Yeah. It's just, like, it's just the world. And it's a really clever use in the movie. And it's, the music's just really good in this film. It is. And I think, you know, you kind of made a good point of how the music shifts from being, you know, happy and fun to more serious because we do get 
kind of the mamas and the papas in this movie because we see Michelle Phillips and Mama Cass, but we don't get their version of California Dreamin'. Mm. We get Jose Feliciano, yeah. and it's just Cliff driving in the car, and it's a sadder kind of, you know... It's a melancholy. Melancholy rendition of the song, and it goes perfectly to where the movie's starting to head. Yeah, and it's it kind of goes into the whole thing of the movie where this, though... This was a melancholy time for Hollywood because the 60s, like, big budget, like, Cleopatra's and stuff mm-hmm. like that were gone. And we were going into an unknown time. Like, Hollywood was gonna die. Yeah. Like, Fox, I think Fox Studios shut down. I think they were selling off big chunks of Warner Brothers. Like, the studio system was going out. And mm-hmm. then New Hollywood came up. And New Hollywood was able to make money with, like... Uh, Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde, Taxi Driver a few years later. And, like, The French Connection was a big hit. And these movies made money and won awards. But they were also so much bleaker. Yeah. And so, and, like, Melancholy is a good way to put them. They had a lot more downer endings. Like, you had funny movies in that time. But the majority of them were, like, these dramas that really got to, like, like, the human condition. But they were so bleak yeah and this is like this movie is a love letter to the time before that Mm -hmm. when hollywood was like the last parts of the golden age before it just changed into something totally different and i think that's gonna lead us to the question you wanted to ask how does this stack up with those love letter movies because this is a love letter to that era of hollywood yeah and a lot of directors have their love letter to hollywood or los angeles we see that with la la land the artist so many other movies and here we have tarantino's version and it's not going to be your traditional you know romantic happy ending yeah it's not uh la la land where it's you know it's a big musical and everything's bright and colorful yeah the movie is a little a little bit great a little bit sadder yeah. You know, even though it has a happy ending, it feels a little bit little bit sadder as it goes on. Yeah, because, I mean, we even have it with uh, Rick and his young co-star in Lancers, where he's just sitting there reading his book, and she's, you know, working on her lines, and I'm a method actress. Or, sorry, I'm a method actor. Cool. I don't go by actress. Yes, I go yes. by actor. And it's kind of like him seeing, oh my god, this girl is a child. And she's going to make it further than me because she is so focused on her craft and she, you know, Well, I don't even know it. if he thinks she'll make it further. It's it's one of those things where, so this is what the next generation of actors are going to be. They're, they're gonna, hungry. Not, yeah, they're not, not even hungry. They're just going to be different because back in that time, if you were an actor, you were, well, he's a Steve McQueen type or he's yeah. a Brando type or he's a Lorm or she's a Lorne Bacall type or she's mm-hmm. kind of like a Lucille Ball type. Where back then, like, you were a actor, you had an image, and then you were in roles that subscribed to that image. But then Hollywood changed to where now you had guys who didn't need to look like Steve McQueen Mm -hmm. to be action heroes. You had people like Gene Hackman in The French Connection. Yeah. Or you had people like Robert De Niro, who was able to play a torn-up Vietnam vet and also play this, like, comedian. And you get this change of actors as the 70s kick in, where they're no longer, like, the square-jawed, you know, six-foot-four, full-of-muscles guys. They're like Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, it's just a fascinating thing how this movie analyzes that. Yeah, because it's not, you know, okay, well, we've got, you know, our John Wayne, our uh, Humphrey Gene, Bogart. Our Gene Kelly's or this it's or It's like, that. you know, you could come in and be your own person and create your own narrative, your own stardom. Mm. Versus, you know, having to kind of step in for the actor that's kind of aging out of these movies that they could be in. Yeah. And that's what we get in this movie where it's kind of like... I am in this position where I'm not quite there yet, but I am on my way there. What do I do to save my career? And, uh, yeah. So, that's, uh, that's about it, ladies and gentlemen. We've, we've reviewed a Kino film. We have, and our Once Upon a Time has ended this month for our Quentin Tarantino month. Um, what was your favorite movie of this month? Uh, it started out my favorite was Reservoir Dogs. Um, that, that was traditionally my favorite Tarantino mm-hmm. film for, like, ever and ever. Yeah. After this, going through a lot more of his career, I have a, I have more respect for Death Proof, now that I know a little bit more behind it. Yeah. I think Once Upon a Time is just a really thoughtful movie that isn't that on the surface. I think it's really clever, but I think Django's probably the best Tarantino we watched this month. Okay. What about, what about you? I mean... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is still going to be my yeah, yeah, my yeah. number one. I love this movie. No doubt, no I'm doubt. surprised you put it over Django because this movie also has Kurt Russell in it. Your hero, know, your love. I know. Uh, Kurt Kurt Russell, uh, he launched a thousand ships. But yeah, but, no, I, I, think, I just think Django's... Django probably is his best movie. Like, I know we put it in the best category and it's like kind of anticlimactic, but like it really, really is good. Yeah, I mean, I think... I was most surprised with Django since I hadn't seen it before. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure what to expect. I really loved it. So Django's, you know, up there on my list of, you know, watch again movies. And this is something I could watch, you know, every now and then. Yeah. But Once Upon a Time is still going to be my favorite. I understand completely. And speaking of Once Upon a Times. Yes. Next month, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be doing something completely different because that's your month. It is. And uh, since Boo likes genre blockbuster films, we're going to be talking about probably one of the oldest genres in all of movies, and that's the gangster genre. Yes, we are. And what movie we're going to watch? Once Upon a Time in America. Yes, going from Once Upon a Time to another Once Upon a Time. This one actually done by Sergio Leone. Very excited. I know you are. I mean, I haven't seen this movie before, so it's going to be kind of interesting, but it's got De Niro. Yes. I don't know if this is our first De Niro movie. No, no, we watched uh, Raging Bull. That was that's like our right. third or fourth episode. Yeah, that's right. We but did. Um, everyone out there, uh, just so everyone knows that they want to watch long, we're going to be watching the long cut. That's like the three or four hour one. Ooh, buddy. And I'm, and I'm just going to point it out, Boo. I know you've never seen it before, and I know you picked this movie out. Um, yeah, so there's going to be two parts of this movie you are absolutely going to despise. All right. We're going to figure what that out is next week. But next week, Boo, where can they go to find us? Well, if you want to find us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We are also on YouTube. Yes, we're on YouTube on the YouTube channel In The Frame. That's In The Frame on YouTube. Uh, Comment, subscribe, listen to other podcasts. It's a lot of fun. And also, this week we're going to be doing something a little special in honor of this episode. We're going to be going where, Boo? Yeah, this weekend, Saturday to be exact, on our Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, we are going to be going to El Coyote and the New Beverly and maybe a couple of other spots, you know, in that area. So if you want to follow us along, 
you can follow us at the Film Club Podcast, and we're going to be doing some live streams. Yeah, and uh, with that, Boo, any last words? We'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.